Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Still, you know, we're talking about earnings, but let's be honest, the Fed has really been moving this market and is likely to continue to do so for some time. So that means we have to talk to Ira Jersey. Whether we want to or not, we have to talk to Ira Jersey because he is the go-to guy. He's the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Ira, you know, what do you expect from your Federal Reserve here? The talk is kind of really ramped up on, hey, we only need 25 basis points this time. Yeah, I, I still think that they'll um, they'll do 25 basis points and they'll leave the door open to doing one or two more um, interest rate hikes. Remember, we don't get a summary of economic projections this time, so there won't be any new dot plot or anything like that. But but it w- we'll be parsing very carefully Jay Powell's post-meeting statement next Wednesday because um, you know, we want to get a hint of what their reaction function is based on incoming data. Like, will they potentially stop uh, at the March meeting? Um, we don't think that they will, but um, but it's going to be a very close call thereafter, we think. so, um, and, and it will be very data dependent. So if, if inflation keeps on the down trajectory that it's been on uh, in recent months, then, you know, we might be very close to nearing the end of uh, interest rate hikes. Um that's a big if, right? Because as China reopens and Europe seems to avoid a deep recession, uh, there could be a lot more, a lot more spending on commodities that could push prices up, and that could come through in inflation. Yeah, that's true, Matt. Uh, you know, I think one of the one of the risks, though, and and one of the one of the key factors that's helping the inflationary environment right now is is base effects, right? So, so the spring of last year was when you saw the largest month-on-month increases in a lot of prices, and, and now you're going to see some of those base effects roll off. So you'll actually have, um, you know, somewhat of a stabilization on a year-on-year perspective. Um, but 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 you're right. Like, and, and one of the things that we've often noted is, look, if if the Federal Reserve hikes to five percent, you know, plus or minus 25 basis points, well, let's say it's five percent, um, then and and you wind up having the PC deflator 
more or less 5%, which seems like it's very likely going to happen over the next couple of months, um, th- then really the, the Federal Reserve will say, okay, look, our job's not done, but we're, we're just not cutting policy. And, and what, what's still amazing to me is that even though the Fed's been very consistent for the last six, seven months with almost every member saying, look, once we reach the peak, we're going to stay there for a long period of time, the market still doesn't believe that, right? The market is still pricing in cuts. For also, the who wants year, that? I, I don't want to sit around with 5% inflation. I mean, base effects was the mantra that we heard at the beginning of 2022, and it still didn't slow inflation down that much, right? If you look at year-over-year CPI, it averaged 7% in 2021. It averaged 6.5% in 2022. So let's say we get down to 5.5% in 2023. I don't want to look forward to 5% in 2024. Like, get it done. Well, that's and that's the reason why they're not going to be cutting, right? So I, I think you know the we, we have yeah, to but raise. Well, I, they, they're not going to probably raise much more than five and a half percent or five and a quarter, um, in part because the, the the some of the underlying inflationary pressures are coming down. So you, you mentioned things like commodities and and. Um, uh, and and goods prices and goods prices have already been falling, right? So so I think we we throughout all of this we've actually missed the fact that core goods prices are actually falling on a month to month basis. What's continuing to rise significantly is uh, our services prices, and and those are driven in large part by by wages and wage gains. Um, and obviously the employment situation continues to be um, you know reasonably good. So so the the Federal Reserve will be pretty happy, I think, to maintain interest rates. This this year. Look, if, Matt, if, you, if you're, you know, you're right, and, and there is a, a large portion of the market that still thinks that the Federal Reserve is behind the curve and they need to continue to hike well beyond 5%, there's a whole other side of the market that's actually uh, you know, clearly winning, saying that, hey, we're going to be in a recession in the second half of the year, and because of that, the Fed's going to be cutting sooner rather than later um, before, um, uh, you know, and, and even before year-end. We, we actually did a piece yesterday looking at what options markets are pricing, and options and even though the market is currently pricing for about 40 basis points of interest rate cuts by the end of the year, it's, what the market's really pricing for is either one cut or four, five, six cuts, right? So, so we're really pricing this bimodal distribution of, of, uh, of but, but all leaning toward cuts and, and not much more in terms of hikes. So, so even though there are some that are sympathetic to your view, Matt, well, um, that most of the market is not, and, and that we're priced for, for cuts, and I, which cuts which I, just, I personally think won't happen. I just want them to take care of inflation before we get into such a deep recession that my boss isn't willing to give me a raise to keep up with inflation, <laughs> right? This is a bad situation, and uh, it's been going on for too long already, and if they continue just to let it go on, it's going to get much worse because until now, wage gains have almost kept up with inflation. They, they still have been outpaced by inflation, but if you get into a situation where inflation keeps smoldering and not all, you know, we see 3M like starting to fire people. They're definitely not giving any raises. Now, you know, the, the FC uh, Central New Jersey tickets that cost me $20 last year and $30 this year that cost me $40 next year, I'm not going to be able to afford to go anymore. Well, and, and that's one of the reasons why and, uh, that, that the Federal Reserve, I think, is not is going to take a wait-and-see approach once they, once they reach the next couple of couple of meetings and they reach that 5% level. Not that that 5% level is any kind of magic number, um, but they, 
uh, they, they know that there is starting to see a slowdown in the in economic activity, and usually slowdowns in economic activity are followed by um, uh, followed by slower price gains, and and uh, and inflation tends to come down. So that's the reason why I think that the Fed is going to take a little bit of a wait and see approach. And um, you know, if, if certainly if if inflation reaccelerates in in a major way, um, then the Federal Reserve at that point would be able to hike more. But but I think you know taking a pause and then trying to maintain rates at five, five and a quarter percent is what they intend on doing, right? And, and look, my, my job also, Matt, is not to, not to tell them what to do and not to give my opinion, but Good I'm point. trying to point out what they should be, do, what, what they will do. And what I think that they will do is maintain interest rates for the rest of this year, probably into 2024, mm. because if the employment situation is strong enough, they'll have the yep. ability to do that. That's what we need, though, someone to, t- to tell us what they will do. You don't need to hear from me and Vince. Right. Tell them what they should do. <laughs> exactly. All right, Ira. Good stuff. We'll get to uh, a soccer discussion at another time. Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We wove in the soccer. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we wove no. it into a little bit. The FC United or FC Central Jersey or something like that. Central, Central Jersey, Jersey Real United. or something like that. Real Central New Jersey. Real Central New Jersey. All right, there we go. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. Unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I have a buddy, uh, David Auerbach. He's the managing director at Armada ETF Advisors and also a fellow Fish fan. Oh, We okay. actually went to see the New Year's Eve shows together. Or one of them. Yep. At Madison Square How Garden. Was it? it was amazing. <laughs> I have to say, it was fantastic. But the funny thing is, so we're sitting there and we had a uh, sweet couple couple of seats. Nice. Um, of course great view. The light show was insane. And in the second set... We get into this deep, like spacey discussion about mall reads. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? In this entire stadium, in no all one. of MSG, nobody else is talking about mall reads right now. Let's bring in David uh, on the phone, joining us out of Texas. Um, great to have you on the program, David. Let's start by talking about the situation that, that uh, the real estate industry or the uh, residential real estate industry finds itself in right now. We'll get to the malls later, but you run House, H-A-U-S, which is an e- ETF, an actively managed ETF that invests in publicly traded 
automated REITs. Talk to me about this, the, the state of your industry. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me back on the air. And of course, I'd rather talk about our fun experience. But, you know, <laughs> right now in the world of publicly traded REITs, you know, we see really a lot of upside. As you know, after the volatile 2022 results, you know, a lot of the REITs are coming out basically forecasting we're not going to have as great of a year NOI growth and, you know, really crush it like we did last year because last year was almost unprecedented for some of the residential REITs. But these guys are still forecasting growth. And in the wake of rising interest rates and rising inflation, we're focused on that end rental payment. We call it the residential REIT income ETF because we say that the rent payment goes into your pocket as income in the form of dividends. And pretty much across the board, these residential REITs have been raising their uh, dividends over the past couple of years through COVID. That's great for Paul. Paul, how good is it? you? You you love dividends. I love dividends. I love coupon guy. payments. That's good stuff. So, has the residential real estate market? I mean, is it still adjusting to this higher mortgage rate environment? Has it steadied? What are we seeing here? Yeah, it's it's definitely adjusting. There's no question about it. You know, some of the home sales numbers that have been coming out recently, though they're somewhat kind of dated results, are showing somewhat of a turnaround compared to what we had seen. You know, in the mid second uh, mid second half of the year last year, I, I hate to use the term, but everybody kicks around that new normal. Look, interest Fed interest rates have gone from zero to four and a half percent. Mortgage rates, you know, went from like two to six, three to six percent last year. We're in this six percent mortgage range right now, and so I think people are accepting it. The problem is that you know, hey, I get this great job opportunity to move from Dallas, Texas to New York, and I'm trading my two seven five mortgage for yeah. a six and change mortgage in New York. I'm, you know, I'm basically locked in. I, I, I'm kind of geographically constrained at that point. And so from the rental payment, from the rental side, you know, unless you're in the market to go out and buy that house right now, you're really focused on what's my end rent payment going to be next month? Yeah. Uh, is it going up 10% or is it going up 100%? Well, and I mean, so many uh, people who haven't been able to buy have been put in that position. In terms of the investment, though, David, for those listening who don't quite get get the ETF, you know, uh, functionality. How does that work? When, when you get paid dividends by the public REITs that you invest in, how does, say, Paul buys a share of house, how does that come through to him? Uh, it's, it's, it's a great question. It basically it's passed through directly to the end shareholder. Uh, we pay a quarterly dividend, and it's basically a culmination of the income received from our underlying constituents. Our fund owns 25 publicly traded REITs. Those are comprised of apartment REITs, single-family rental REITs, manufactured housing, senior housing, all these companies are reporting monthly and quarterly dividends. That adds up, and that basically then goes into your pocket at the end of the day as a shareholder in the form of a dividend. So it's just like any other stock. So if Paul calls this guy at Payne Weber or wherever and says, <laughs> uh, been around for a while, and says, you just reinvest those dividends, or they just cut him a check every quarter. That's right, right. And, you know, Paul strikes me probably more as like a, you know, uh, day one Robin Hood type of guy who was well ahead of the curve there. Uh, <laughs> right. But yes, that is correct. Again, ETFs are publicly traded vehicles. They trade just like stocks, bid-ask spreads, trade during market hours. You know, and, and we've highlighted that liquidity. You know, Matt, you and I have talked about the private versus public and what we've been seeing in some of the private REITs that's out there, you know, talking about gaining redemptions, investors having a hard time pulling their money out. You know, they're never going to be able to get out of this maze of, you know, trying to capture their investment. And so for us, we're highlighting the liquidity of publicly traded REITs and ETFs. 
you want to put a million dollars into house, thank you very much. You can pull out a million dollars of house very quickly just as well versus you may have a harder time in some of these private vehicles right now. So, Dave, you talked about mortgage rates up, up that 6% range. Is the expectation that, you know, a lot of folks are saying the Fed's going to be cutting rates at the end of this year or early next year. So is it, are the mortgage folks you talk to saying, hey, the mortgage rates will come back down along with the Fed? I, yes, the answer is yes. Mortgage rates tendly, uh, traditionally do tend to move hand-in-hand hand with interest rates. If we do see that correction coming back in later in the back half of the year, yes, I would expect to see that. However, at the end of the day, though, until we really see the mortgage rates go back from, let's say, 6% to you know a more manageable level of 4%, I still think we're going to see you know some topsy-turviness in the housing market. What does this – what are these big changes? And, I mean – I don't know, when's the last time the Fed raised 450 basis points right. in a year? Um, what do they do to ETFs and net asset values? I mean, they're bigger and bigger divergences, right? How do those fix themselves? Uh, well, you know, for us, again, we're looking for us at the residential REITs and focusing on the underlying constituents themselves. I will highlight that many of these REITs took advantage during covid to recapitalize you know, their balance sheets, and we're able to lock in very long-term debt at a very attractive rate. So unfortunately, you know, I can't control, as I, as I tell people, I can't control my ETF stock price. I can't control my constituent stock price. All I can focus is on the narrative, highlighting how well-capitalized these companies are. And I focus on the fundamentals. And usually at the end of the day, Matt, as we talked about, I take, you know, pick your favorite Wall Street stock, REITs, Apple, Microsoft, whoever, take your four, you know, your favorite company, and I try to boil it down to four bullet points. What do you want a good company to do? Well, at the end of the day, it's very simple. You want them to grow revenues, grow profits, grow dividends, and grow guidance. And that's pretty much what you have been seeing from the residential REITs across the board over the past year, two years coming out of COVID. And so from the fundamental perspective, the bottom line is these guys are in a pretty solid position right now. Let's just quickly touch on malls for a second, because uh, I thought it was such a cool conversation that we had um, in an extended version of Tweezer. No, it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't really Tweezer. Uh, what, 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 what is up with that business? Like, can it ever come back? Um, what do they need to do? And what, what do you think about it? Well, cap rates in the mall sector have been going backwards down the number line to throw another reference at you. <laughs> and when we look at some of the high quality properties versus, you know, you and I spend a lot of time talking about American Dream. And uh, in fact, Bloomberg Opinion ran a great piece yesterday talking about how mall landlords are spending huge dollars to offer these experiential type experiences in indoor ski malls and right. ski retail locations, as an example. And the question is, if you if you build it, will they come? And you know, at the end of the day, look, there is no place like the mall. I, I have fond memories of going to the arcade, going to Mrs. Fields Cookies, and, you know, that was where we spent our weekends. And I know it's a different generation, but the mall guys are trying to reach out towards that yep. next generation, whether it's through esports venues. I do see the mall isn't going away. I, I think we're going to see an evolution of the mall space. I'm looking forward to it. Good stuff. I hope they put in pickleball. Pickleball? You're a big yeah. pickleball fan? Oh, yeah. All in. And whatever the latest Fed is. David Auerbach, Managing Director, Armada ETFs, uh, giving us his thoughts on the residential real estate market and their residential REIT um, income ETF is House. H-A-U-S, House. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But mortgage rates 
at 6% makes it tough for some buyers. Now let's talk about some industrial America, agricultural equipment, turbine engines, all that kind of good stuff. We can do that with Karen Ubelhart. She covers all that industrial stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Karen, lots to talk about. Let's start with one of your all-time faves. You've been following this company for decades, GE. What do we learn today with their earnings and kind of what's their story going forward? Uh, well, you know, um, on just briefly on the fourth quarter, I guess the, there was uh, positive surprises and negative surprises I, I, on aerospace. That was kind of in line. Power, which is a big turnaround story, they did much better than expected on margins, um, double-digit margins, which they haven't done in four years. Um, however, they lost that in renewables, which is, um, a, a, you know, an ongoing issue for them. Um, as far as the outlook, uh, you know, again, it's going to be driven by aerospace. The outlook was lower than people expected on an EPS basis. I think they're probably low-balling on, air, on aerospace, and they're giving themselves some room for problems, again, in renewables, although the long-term outlook is good for renewables, so we might want to talk about that a bit. So, uh, all right, let's talk about that. And let's talk about the longer-term outlook for General Electric for the stock. What do you, th- what do you think? You know, I think 2023 is going to be another wishy-washy year because, A, they've still got to spin off power. Power, uh, the uh, energy business now called Vernova, that is a problem. It's going to lose money again this year. They're going to try to uh, get it out the door in the spin in the first quarter. So that's going to be hovering over while we have the overlay of their ongoing business, aerospace, is going to have, you know, over 20 percent growth, uh, you know, uh, you know, high double digit margins. And then the big issue that came up in the quarter, it was probably eight of the 10 questions was on what is free cash flow going to look like next year. Um, so I can. What is, what is free cash flow going to look like okay, next year? Okay, there we go. Okay, um, on that, uh, okay, on that front, um, free cash flow is going to look good for aerospace, but uh, renewables and, pa- and power, since they ha- it's a very long-term business, when they get orders, they have to disperse um, money up front on these long-term projects. And they're going to pay out three to four billion dollars in disbursements uh, for projects in the renewable business, uh, which is really going to significantly impact free cash flow. They are going to have positive free cash flow. It will be up from this year. But I, there was a lot of uncertainty about the timing and magnitude of the re- renewable uh, pay, uh, upfront payments. They will get that money back. But again, um, eight out of the 10 questions were on how does free cash flow look next year? So, so I think that's what the focus is going to be on this year. Karen, I like to look at, especially with big behemoths like this, I like to look at a comp screen, COMP on the Bloomberg. It automatically pulls up the stock over a five-year window. And if I pull up GE over a five-year window, put them up against Honeywell, Siemens, ABB, what dogs, what a horrible, horrible investment it's been. Um, is it? Is that going to change? I mean, do I need to... Start from square one, wipe out the last four years, and 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 start my comp screen from you know yesterday or uh, this month is. Uh, yeah, you know, once this, you know, I think the long term picture for GE Aerospace is tremendous, and that is going to be GE Core once everything else is gone. Um, they're a market leader in engine in in the um, commercial engine business. They have um, a, you know a good position in military as well, but the focus will be commercial aerospace. That recovery is still in very early phases. It's got a long way to go. Um, that business can probably do 20% plus margins. It's at 18% now. That's the story. They're gonna, when, when they divest power, the problem business, I mean, um, you know, energy to power business, it's going to be a, a, a high-quality aerospace play. 
and it's going to be a very interesting story. All right, one other stock that has done almost as poorly as GE, well, maybe even worse, depending on the the window you look, um, is 3M. I mean, over five years, 3M has managed to underperform GE. How do you <laughs> how do you do worse than General Electric? Uh, but they've done it. Why is it so bad when you know other companies like that create that build big equipment in America, like Caterpillar and Deer, have done so much better? Uh, 3M has a huge overhang of um, litigation issues with um, PFAS and or they have and and also an airplug um, uh, litigation. PFAS is that forever chemicals. It's also affecting Dupont, et cetera, and that could be our litigation guys. That could be thirty, forty billion dollar overhang on the stock for a while. Um, they'll be they'll be litigating that for years, and then they'll be paying it out over a long period of time. They can't get out from under that cloud. On top of that, the operating performance has been disappointing. So every you know everywhere yeah. you look, it's not been great news for three M. So I mean, their and stock looks as bad as Bayer. You know, the German yeah. uh, chemical company. Guess that when three M went public? Yeah. IPO, January twenty eighth, nineteen oh one twenty nine. Oh. <laughs> just before the crash and just before that. So that's when 3M went public. So, Karen, pulling back the lens a little bit. When they're firing 2,500 people now. And they're firing are we gonna see yeah. those? Yeah. Are we going to see those kind of headcount cuts at Caterpillar, at Deer? Uh, well, first, I think that's a signal um, to the broad industrial sector because 3M, with the breadth of their product line in industrials and consumers, they kind of are GDP. And they're kind of signaling that. And they did see decline. They have expectations of declines in organic growth in every business but healthcare next year. So I think that's a signal to the broader uh, industrial sector. However, Deer and Caterpillar are driven, uh, have a very good outlook in the commodity markets. And they are really going to distinguish themselves in 2023. Like, you know, um, ag equipment is going to be strong. Uh, mining is going to be strong. Uh, you know, so that's why those stocks are, are are breaking away because they're in a commodity cycle that uh, is is going to continue to be strong. So, Karen, what, 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 are your, what are your big industrial agricultural companies that we've been talking about? What do they do in a recession? Because clearly, boy, all they're going to see it right away. They probably have seen it. Do they cut people? Do they cut? Do they shut plants? What do your companies do? Well, you know, if, if you're talking ag, that's kind of a cycle of its own. And, um, you know, given what's gone, gone, gone on in grain prices, there's a good story there. Yep. Um, Chris Chilino covers that and can do that in more detail. But, but on, on, the, on, on Cat and Deer, they're both in the construction equipment business as well. And there will be some minor hit to that business, but less than a normal recession because all the money the government's spending. So that's the other thing they have, the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the in- infrastructure bill m- money is starting to flow. Demand for that equipment is very, very strong. Um, and then that will continue as the Inflation Reduction Act starts to contribute later in the year. So they've got a lot of wind behind their sails um, in, in the construction side. And then the mining side looks good. And then the ag side looks good. So the, those two companies that you've named have, uh, you know, have a very favorable outlook. All right. Good stuff. Karen Uberhart, she follows all that industrial uh, stuff for that's middle America. That's I serious. love it, dude. Like I mean, factories I think, and you know enough stuff. of this uh, enough of this Twitter exactly. junk. You know exactly. enough of this cloud services. Go make a tractor. Exactly. Exactly. Give Karen me Uberhart, I mean, even a wheelbarrow. I'd be happy with. Sure. You know. Yeah, you got a craftsman wheelbarrow. That's what you need, right?
Well, I don't know about craftsmen, but no? yes. Oh, you got your own brand of loyalty and wheelbarrows? Does Snap-on make wheelbarrows? I don't know. Mac tools? Who <laughs> knows? All right, that's Cal Newberhart uh, from Bloomberg Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It's kind of rough when you look under the hood of the da- of the Dow of the S and P five hundred. Three M is the biggest loser in percentage terms. They're down five and a half percent. I wonder what they thought. You know, when they said we're going to cut twenty five hundred jobs, and they started preparing the press release. Do we buy these shares now? Because they're probably going to pop tomorrow. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you're not a tech company. When the tech companies report job layoffs, the stock goes up. When you're just a plain old American. Uh, industrial company that's not so people much worry the case. about demand they worry about demand all right a lot of folks like to talk about private equity but we like talking about private credit that's been an asset class just really getting a lot of assets a lot of attention over the last several years it's been a really good business particularly when rates were lower now with rates going higher what's the outlook there uh for all things private credit we welcome our good friend randy schwimmer he's co-head uh, of senior lending and senior uh, managing director over there at churchill asset management so randy what does this asset class look like? What is your outlook for private credit in a world that's no longer, you know, 0% interest rates? Well, I'll tell you, if you liked private credit in 2022, you are going to love it in 2023. Okay. Because what's happening is essentially the same thing that happened then, rates going up, inflation coming down in the second half of the year, seemingly continue in the first quarter, um, strong economy, strong economy, yet yields up. So we're at practically record yields in terms of private credit for senior debt, close to 12%. Um, haven't seen that in a long, long time. And it doesn't look like that's going away because the Fed looks like they're going to stick around for a while. So what do you expect from the Fed and how key is that to um, the asset class? What we know is that we don't really know where they're going to end up because we don't have the data yet. They're taking, it seems like, a slower approach. 25 basis points looks like the outlook for the next hike. Um, the, what the Fed members are saying is, let's see what the data brings. Let's get it up to 475, which would be the next hike. Get up to 5% and see what happens then. The question is, will we continue to see a strong economy, which is bedeviling the Fed right now because they're trying to slow things down? They've started to take the punch away from the punch bowl away from the party. Will they have to start turning lights on, dismissing the DJ, 
you know, telling people to leave the room. That would happen if you get up to a 6% Fed funds rate, which would really slow things down. Paul, have you looked at FCON lately? Uh, yes, I'd, thanks to you, I do. It's Financial conditioning. Positive territory, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, it's looking good. I look the at the graph, are right? Gra- are great. The yeah. economy seems to be humming along just fine, and uh, maybe that argues for a bigger push. How much does it matter, Randy? I mean, when the Fed peaks, is that a problem for private credit? Because it's been on fire as they've been raising rates. Well, think about that level of interest rates. So... Typical SOFR spread on senior credit right now is six six and a quarter percent, on top of what let's say is a five to you know difference between a five percent benchmark and a six percent. Now you're talking twelve percent cost, twelve percent interest rates for senior debt. You know that all of a sudden makes the calculus tricky for private equity sponsors who are looking at their equity investments and saying, well, I'm trying to get a twenty five thirty percent yield on my equity, and now the senior debt guys are costing me twelve percent. You know, how does that how does that math work? So at some point, that interest cost gets to be a real burden on these borrowers, um, and you're starting to see interest coverage shrink. We never paid attention to that in 2021 because interest was basically zero. Mm-hmm. But now you're, you're, you've doubled interest spreads uh, and, and total costs. Now that interest coverage is tightening, and particularly with the have-nots in the economy. So you've been talking about industrials, which in many cases are the haves in this in this economy right now, doing very well. But in some of the have-nots with retail, some retail businesses, um, energy, some, some heavy consumer-facing businesses, those businesses are going to have a challenging time with higher interest rates. All right. So when a sponsor comes to you guys now with a deal, um, are the covenants tighter? Are the, you know, the leverage ratios different? The coverage ratios different? Yeah. Well, How does co- the world change? Because, because coverage is tighter then the amount of debt that they can put on these companies is smaller. Okay. So that's come down anywhere from half to a full turn of leverage, which is really good for investors because lower leverage means lower risk, higher yield is better returns. Um, but from the issuer's perspective, it's going to be more costly. They're going to have to watch their margins. So the businesses we like tend to be more high-margin businesses, low capex, more defensive, like business services. So as you look at your portfolio right now, I presume, presume your credit guys are really sharpening their pencil to saying, how is our portfolio set up right now right. for rising interest rates? What may be a recession? Kind of what are you seeing here? Well, the way that our portfolio is constructed, it's mostly defensive industries, as I mentioned, with high free, free cash flow um, ratios. And so the businesses, generally speaking, are doing quite well. In fact, for the third quarter, we don't have fourth quarter yet. Third quarter numbers for our portfolio, we call it the Griffin Index, after, after our mascot, the, okay. the uh, Churchill Griffin, um, is up in revenues and cash flow t- over 25%. Now, those include companies that are doing add-ons, so M&A is part of that, but these businesses are growing. Um, to your point, when we started about the economy, certainly in those areas that are more defensive, those businesses are doing well. Our portfolio companies are doing well. That seems to be the case in general in uh, when you look at the more uh, business service arena. Um, and that's both the challenge and the opportunity that we have because if our portfolio continues to perform, it means we can continue to lend. So private equity firm comes to us and says, hey, we've got a deal. We look at if it fits the kind of parameters that we like for these businesses, we have the capital to invest in. And what is the deal flow like now you're seeing yeah. from the so side? So we had a good January, good first part of January. Some of it kind of leaked over from the end of the year. Um, but the forward pipeline is slowed down, no question about it. What's helpful about direct lending is that the ratio of deals that are being done 
in the private credit space versus public is now four to one in favor of private. Really? Because of long-term capital and the ability of folks like Churchill to commit large dollars and get deals done. What's a typical term loan from you, or a typical deal, like length? Yeah, so it's it's basically five to seven years. Okay. Um, now, they don't last for that long because these companies tend to get refinanced or bought. So the average you know, t- tenor is probably two and a half to three years. And you guys are doing small and mid-sized? mid-sized yeah, these deals? are companies that are between, you know, 50 million in revenues, 500 million in so revenues. Who's, that's not a KKR-type deal, is it? Who's sources? So the, these like are, are middle market private equity sponsors. There are, you know, we have 250 that are in our stable okay. that come to us all the time. And, you know, we're top one of the top lenders in the space. All right. A couple things I want to ask about your business specifically. Um, you have a wildly popular newsletter, The Lead Left. The Lead Left. And I feel like that could also be um, an, an indicator as to the interest in the yeah. asset, right? So uh, what's it look well, like Well, what's now? interesting is we had an M&A webinar last week. We had 700 registrants, you know, not quite the Bloomberg Radio uh, no, audience of, big. <laughs> for Paul and Matt, <laughs> but, but basically people going online and listening to what's going on. The short story from five top middle market investment bankers came on this webinar to talk about business is it's a world of the haves and have-nots. The haves being the companies that we talked about earlier, the defensive businesses. The have-nots are the businesses that um, are more retail-focused, higher capex, and so forth. For those have-nots, there's no bid. If you're a seller, it's like if you you have a $500,000 apartment, you want to get your $500,000, somebody offers you $400,000, you know what? I'm going to wait. So a lot of those sellers are waiting. For the good businesses, and you know, you have an apartment that people like. It's a nice area in Manhattan. They say, you know what? I'll give you that five hundred. I don't even need financing. I can close tomorrow. You're going to sell that business. So we're seeing the haves getting traded, the haves not, have nots not, and the, the big factor now is the wait and see that we talked about with the Fed. What's the Fed going to do? What's going to happen with interest rates? And most importantly, what's going to happen with valuations? Because for the haves. Valuations are okay. We, we only have a minute, but I know uh, one of the other questions, what's going to happen with the debt ceiling? We're going to start talking about it every day, and I'm already sick of it. But, I can't wait. But what, <laughs> do you, what do you think about it? How does it impact? Well, remember doing? in 2011, um, it was a big deal. I can't believe that it was 12 years ago. Um, and, you know, the mark, public markets had a real strong reaction. Uh, we lost a, uh, a letter. We lost an A from the AAA to a double That's A. Right. Um, and I think it, it feels like government has become more fraught uh, than it was then, and so it's going to be a challenge. Can you believe government is more dysfunctional now than it was then? <laughs> so here we are, and we're going to be all hopeful that a resolution is in place. I know we have till I guess, June to figure it out, so I can't wait to listen and hear on Bloomberg Radio. Man, all right. If I was coming out of the Chase Credit Program today like I did back in the day, I'd go work for these guys. I think private credit is a place to go. Man. Absolutely. Send me your resume. 100, yeah. I 100% agree. You know? I'll send you my resume from 1991, I think. Yeah. I'm not even 50, so I'll come over. Experience, you know? I'm still ex- young. Experience matters, guys. Experience Thank matters. you. All right, Randy Schwimmer, he's co-head of Senior Lending. He's the Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. We love talking to Randy, A, because he's nearby and he, and he can come to the studio. That's a plus. But we like just talking about private uh, credit. It's a growing asset class, and it's just where a lot of – Funds are going. Mm. Um, it's where you know you get some of these deals in the small, mid-sized space uh, on the M and A side, and it's a great uh, capital structure these guys can put on. Yeah, we got to get the lead left on the Bloomberg terminal. Is what we have to. Get. Oh, that'd be a good idea. Right we now, you can go to leadleft.com, but maybe we can include it in your Bloomberg subscription. Yeah, we'll take a look at that. All right, Randy Schirmer, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Love talking about that stuff. Let's talk our C-suite conversation of the day. Let's talk. Online grocery shopping. We can do that with 
Uh, che Huang, CEO and co-founder of Boxed. That is a New York Stock Exchange listed company. Uh, the ticker is B-O-X-D. Put that into your Bloomberg Professional Terminal and take a look at that. So, Shay, thanks so much for, for joining us here. Inflation's kind of the topic of the day for all consumers. Um, and, boy, I, I tell you, the place I feel it the most, I think, is in the supermarket, is in the grocery store. Talk to us about how it's impacting your business. Uh, I wish I could say I was immune from it, but as a consumer, I feel it uh, as well. And it's not just the topic of the day, but probably the topic of the year as well. Um, you know, it's been rampant throughout the industry. First, we had supply chain. Uh, now we just have general inflation uh, uh, kind of problems. Uh, but overall, it's not an easy time being a consumer uh, in those grocery aisles, in-store or online. So what um, kind of experience is Boxed offering consumers? And is it just consumers? I feel like you have a B2B component as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, traditionally, um, uh, pre-COVID, our, our business was 75% B2C and 25% uh, uh, B2B. So anyone who wants wholesale consumables delivered to their doorstep, uh, whether they live out in rural areas or they, they're in a city office, uh, uh, we can service them uh, anywhere in the lower 48 states. But why? What's what's the unique selling point here? I mean, do I pick a box of stuff? Do I put all the stuff I want in my box? Um, do you deliver it quickly? What's What separates you from other online grocers? Yeah, I think the answer is a yes to everything you just said. So uh, we've built a business on allowing folks to build a basket of these goods. So the typical consumer buys eight items. And so we ship it to you generally in two days or less. Uh, uh, many folks get it overnight uh, direct to your doorstep. So you don't have to lug all this stuff all around and without a membership fee. You know, on top of that, because folks generally buy so many items at once, we can amortize that shipping price for individual items over that giant box that you get. So we actually offer pretty compelling prices compared to other online folks when you compare the unit price. And if you think about us not charging a membership fee. So yeah, talk to us about the membership fee aspect. What's the strategy there? How does it compare against others? There's uh, no membership in, fee, right? Right, right. So I just want to get a sense of kind of what's the strategy behind that and how that you know, it compares to your competitors. Yeah, so a lot of competitors out there do charge a membership fee uh, um, in order to shop, but we just decided not to do that. I think when you look at uh, other ways that we've been able to lower prices, whether it's getting folks to buy a lot in a single cart, as I just mentioned, uh, or partnering with manufacturers uh, in order to get some advertising on our site uh, uh, to subsidize those prices, uh, you know, we've been doing a pretty good job, I think. And consumers, time and time and again, come to Box, whether you're a business or a consumer, not only for kind of the fast shipping, the ease of use, but also uh, pretty sharp pricing uh, as, uh, as well. So I was living in Berlin for the past few years, and over there, uh, you yeah. order online groceries. They get to you in like 10 to 12 minutes. Um, Gorillas was one of the brands. Flickr, Flinker was another one. Is, how come that isn't picking up here in the U.S.? Um, I, I think it had it, uh, uh, quite a brief kind of, uh, flash in the pan moment, uh, uh, I would say probably a year ago, um, at least here in New York, where I'm standing right now, you know, there were ads everywhere. Um, I think, you know, for what it's worth, um, it does have its place. Sometimes you just need something in the next 10, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but for the most part, I think your general bigger shops are probably taking place once a week. Uh, and for the wholesale stuff, maybe once every other week. Um, so I think the future really will be uh, dominated by whoever solves that end-to-end -end kind of experience. I, I need wholesale in a week, but I need uh, something, an ingredient for my, my uh, recipe in 30 minutes, but I need my weekly shop 
uh, into ours. Right now, as simple as that sounds, no one has that end-to-end seamless experience. And I think that's what everyone in grocery is trying to chase. So how has your business evolved during the pandemic over the last several years? Oh, it, it's, it's evolved quite a bit. So uh, I know we just talked about B2B. So B2B, I mean, we saw major headwinds uh, uh, during uh, the, the depths of COVID. You could imagine we service small to medium-sized offices, transportation companies. Um, those folks just weren't ordering in 2020 and 2021. Um, but we're seeing that rocket back. So um, B2B, if we're going to talk uh, numbers, hard numbers, through Q3 of last year, it was up a blended uh, over 50%. So folks are really coming back and ordering more. Um, and also all this technology uh, that underpins our whole business, we wrote it ourselves, whether it's the middleware, the automation hardware, uh, we then extracted it. And now we began to license that technology to folks all around the world. So we've evolved quite a bit throughout that time as well. So um, one of the very successful, uh, I guess, pieces of um, grocery business are private labels, right? Um, yeah. Shoprite yep. has Bull and Basket. Uh, Costco has Kirkland. Um, what are you What are you doing in in that uh, in that regard at Box? Yeah, I, you know, I, I love the question because you guys have covered it so much in terms of just the inflationary environment, how it affects the consumer, how how it affects businesses. You know, one of the things that I, I think um, hasn't been said uh, by by some of the previous guests that you guys have been on is actually how people behave in previous kind of recessionary or inflationary environments. And that's folks trading up or trading down. So they generally trade down to dollar stores, hard discounters, if they're looking for uh, uh, just a better deal on a whole dollar basket, um, or they trade up. Uh, so I'm sure you know folks at Bloomberg Radio consume a lot of seltzer water, just like I do. And if that's the case, then you know if you have the wherewithal, you're going to buy that giant 24-pack instead of buying a single can uh, every single day. Now, once you go in the store, um, you're also going to trade up sometimes or, or trade down, uh, d- you know, uh, depending on the price point uh, for certain items. And a way you can trade down in terms of price but not quality is private brand. And private brand, everyone out there, if you haven't tried uh, not only us but our others out there, this is not the generic brands of like 10, 20, 30 years ago. There has been billions of dollars invested into the manufacturing of these products, and their quality is actually quite good these days. So I'm looking at the uh, FA function on the Bloomberg terminal. Give me some, uh, and it shows me some of the forecasts out there from Wall Street. Here, doesn't show uh, you guys turning EPS positive anytime soon. What's what's kind of your financial outlook as it relates to profitability? Because that seems to be what the market really wants these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've been trying our best and and pulling in that profitability number. So in Q2, uh, in our earnings call last year, uh, uh, we told folks, uh, um, hey. We get it. Um, I think we could do a better job on pulling in profitability. We executed, and as of our last earnings call, um, just in one short quarter, we announced an 88% rise uh, in um, uh, in gross profit, uh, over a 500 basis point rise in gross margin on our retail business. And of course, we have the software business, which is traditionally 70 to 80% gross margin. And as we begin to recognize some of that revenue, I think you're going to see that flow through the PNL. So. Us, just like every other technology company out there, we're really trying to rein in profitability and costs. All right, Che, good stuff. Appreciate that. Che Huang, CEO and co-founder of Box. That's an online retailer. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange symbol is B. 
OXD. Had a banner day last week. Uh, they got funding, I think uh, 10 or $20 million in funding, and the shares went up um, 55%. Oh, nice. Uh, that was Monday. <laughs> that was Monday. All right, good stuff. Not a bad day. Not a bad day if you're a shareholder there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.